Good morning, beloved. It's good to see you. Uh, If you have your copy of Scripture, please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. So one thing that is true of me is I really like hats, like a lot. Um, I'm a hat guy, um, but I'm also afraid of them. So you may be like, I don't ever see wearing hats. And that's because I'm also afraid of them. I love them, but I'm scared of them. The reason that I'm scared of them is um, I know that no one has noticed, but my hairline is receding a bit. Um, (laughs) Something about the last three and a half years of my life has caused my hair to change in a couple ways. But um, I was told at one point that wearing hats actually accelerates hair loss. Like, well, that's not good. Like, I already love hats partly because I think it's not going to be too long before I'm just going to have to be a hat guy because I'm not going to have any hair. Um, But at the same time, I don't want to become a hat guy now and just accelerate that process. So um, I live in the tension of loving hats, um, but also being scared to wear them. Um, But this is one of my favorite hats. Um, This this hat is by a company that I love their clothes, but I can't afford them. Um, So I just have one of their hats. This was a hat that was released with a fishing tournament that they sponsored. Um, So I just think it's kind of cool, the artwork on it and stuff. I like the color scheme. Um, But um, here's the thing. This is one of the few flat bill hats that I have. And they make something far more pronounced for me. And that is, I did not know until I started wearing hats, I would walk away from the, from the room wearing the hat or whatever, and then I'd see my reflection somewhere, and it dawned on me, like, hat's always sideways. Like, it's always turning a little. Like, it's not straight. And so I just, over time, realized this is consistent, that I put a hat on, and next thing I know, it's, like, slightly just facing left. Like, what is that all about? And so I've, I've played with it a little, and I've come to realize, and, and this is me kind of being honest with you and a confessing some insecurities here, but you know, so be kind with me. My head's not straight. <laughs> it's not. Um, it's, it's a, yeah, <laughs> it's, it is clear. It is very clear, and hats actually broadcast that for the world to see, that when I think a hat is on normal and how it should be, it's actually slightly off. Um, because my head's not straight. So there you go. There you have it. I have an oddly shaped head that's not symmetrical. And you know what they say about beautiful people have symmetrical faces and stuff. <laughs> it's not me. It's okay. <laughs> so, um, but man, I, it makes me think of, you know, James, the half-brother of Jesus. He wrote the book of James. And in it, he's talking about how you want to be a hearer, but also a doer of the word. That, that if, you, if you hear the word, but then you don't do what it says, he's like, it's kind of like this guy who goes and he just like stares into the mirror and he's like, that's me. And then he walks away from that mirror and completely forgets who he is. And I feel kind of like that with hats. So like I put it on, looks right. Next thing you know, like you're always adjusting it, take it off, put it back on. And next thing you know, like I look in another mirror, I'm like, whoa, what did you do, Kevin? <laughs> this, this weirdness, uh, the, the tension of just forgetting who we are. And Paul actually is addressing that. As we come through, um, we're continuing where we left off last week, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start today in verse 17. But Paul's progression through Ephesians to this point is he's saying, hey, look, here is the beauty of the gospel. That God has made you who you are. He gets to decide who you are. So don't listen to everything that your heart is saying and condemning you. Don't listen to the world around you. Listen to what God says because of your faith, by grace through faith, nothing else, nothing you could do. You have been made a son, a daughter of God. You are chosen. You are holy. You are blameless. You are adopted. You are forgiven. All these things. This is who you are, your position in Christ, that in him, the one who died for all so that all might live. So this is who you are. You're saved. 
You're loved. You are the beloved of God. You could not do this. You don't deserve it. You can't brag about it. He did it for you in grace. And so if this is true, now he has created a new man. He uses that language. There's a new man. And so all the divisions that the, the law brought on is like, there's hostility. Like, we're good at keeping this. You're not good at keeping this. Jews, Gentiles, all this tension. He's like, no, 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 that wall, it's gone. There's not just a new man. They used to be united united as the one new man, this church, the bride of Christ. And so as he's walked through that, he's been addressing different things and he's told us, you know, you're gonna walk in love, you're gonna be united. And he's praying beautiful prayers for them, showing us where his heart is and how he goes about his digressions and all this stuff. And now we come to verse 17 of chapter four. After hearing about his call for us to live in this unity of faith, to grow all of us together, every part being essential, all of it being vital, every one of us. And now look at what he says in verse 17. Therefore, so again, tying this back to what he's already said. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. So here, Paul says, hey, don't live like the Gentiles. And what is that? Oh, that's a, I'm in a Gentile. Should I take offense to this? What is he saying in here? He's using the, the phrase Gentile as a reference to those who are not the people of God. Now, this is a continual theme of Paul's that, that actually to be a Jew, to be of Israel is not an ethnic thing anymore. It's actually to be not circumcised of flesh, but circumcised of heart. That you are brought into the family of God. And so as he's referring to Gentiles, he's referring to those who do not know God. And he's like, don't live like them anymore. He's contrasting that with the new man that Christians now are. The new man that God has brought about. And he says, like, in the futility of their thoughts and darken in their understanding, what he's doing by using these phrases, he's showing us, don't walk like them, meaning you're going to be different, which is the essence of what holy is. He's saying you're going to walk in holiness. You're not going to be like them. And where is the battleground of holiness? The mind. It's the way that you think. It's, it's our thoughts that start this process that becomes this outward action. And so the battleground of holiness is our mind. And he talks about the hardness of heart and how they become callous, implying that they cannot feel, they cannot have affection for God. And so they give themselves over to things to attempt to fill that hunger, to fill that void within them and not being able to feel the only one who actually satisfies. That Lewis would talk about this God-sized hole in our hearts. That we're desperately trying to fill it and we're just shoveling anything and everything we can at it. But the only thing that will satisfy that is God. And so he's saying, those who don't know God are turning and running after everything they possibly can except God to fill the thing that only God himself can fill. And Lewis actually said it like this in Mere Christianity. He said, if I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That we can run after all of these created things and never see that it's only the creator who's going to satisfy this. It's futility of mind. It's this hardness of heart, this callousness, this desire, as he says, is for more and more. And have you noticed that about your sin? That our sins are never satisfied with just staying where they are. Like an addiction, it must grow and grow because of that desensitization of sin. 
the hardness of heart, the callous, that sin by its very nature is consuming and it grows more and more. This desire for more and more, the escalation of sin. And now he continues, verse 20. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. You have to stop there and say, wait, how did they come to know Christ? He's writing to the church in Ephesus. To our knowledge, Jesus never went to Ephesus. Certainly not in his three years of public ministry. When he's going about proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So wait, what is, Paul is saying, but that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus? How did they come to know Christ? How were they taught by him living in Ephesus? How, is Paul just out of his mind? No, it's the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel, but by personally encountering Christ himself in the preaching of that gospel. Meaning this is personal. When Christ is proclaimed, when his gospel is proclaimed, it's actually an encounter with Christ himself. John uses this, this phrase, logos, or word, for Jesus. That Jesus is the word. And so you can never cleanly separate out Jesus and the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. And so the word of God comes to us. As the Ephesians encountered the proclaimed word of God, they encountered Christ himself. They were taught by Christ himself. As you hear the gospel preached, you are being taught by Jesus himself. And that is not to say, I am Jesus right now teaching you. That is to say, his word cannot be separated from him. And so you hear his voice. You're taught by him that Jesus is the truth. And what is the truth that Jesus taught them as they encountered him? It's this gospel. It's, we've been made a new man. We now have a different way of thinking. We now know that I'm not at the middle of this. I'm not at the center of this. You are not either. God is. The God is central. He is Lord. We confess him as Lord. And it's not about this, just this. It's all of eternity. He's come for so much more. And so we have a different way of thinking, that we see God at the center of things and we see things in light of eternity. And so now watch what he has taught as he continues this thought in verse 22. He's, Jesus has taught us to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. We are driven by desires. I can get on a big soapbox here, but you know, like... We as Americans love autonomy. There's individual power, our, our own self-sovereign existence that I get to decide and things like that. Um, we love this idea of free will. And you absolutely biblically have human responsibility. But have you ever considered what's really free about your will? Not a lot. You are always bound to your greatest desire. You're always bound to your greatest treasure. Every decision you make is going to be in accord with what you value most. So are you truly free? You'll freely choose what you treasure most. But that is what you are bound to. And so we're driven by our desires. And he's saying, in the old self, this pre-conversion dead man, we were deceived by our desires that corrupted us as we thought we knew what we desire and we just throw these things at what we think will satisfy these desires and it's deceitful. And Jesus has taught us to die to the old self. He used language like, take up your cross and follow me. Or to lose your life is to find it. 
Like, what? What is this paradigm that Jesus is saying? It's actually when I come to the end of myself that I find myself. That when I lay down my life, I actually take up life. That it's in death that I find life. This is wild. And this is what Jesus has taught us. He's told us, take up our cross. He's told us to count the cost, to see that these deceitful desires are never fulfilled. And they leave us lacking and wanting more and more. And so do you actually ever take the time to think about the things that you indulge in? I think, did it ever really satisfy? Or does it just actually make me want more? And what in life actually satisfies? And what has Jesus taught us? Now continue, verse 23. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Again, the mind is the battleground of holiness. And he's this, this restored image. We're in the likeness of God. You remember how God created all of humanity? In his image. And we are made in the image of God to proclaim to the world this is who God is. And yet we sinned, we broke that, we've marred that. And Christ has come and he's restored that. So now you get to go be image bearers. You get to show who the world, or show the world who God is in the likeness of God. And that is in, as he uses here, righteousness and purity of the truth. It is his righteousness given to us, not our own. And we get to show the world that. And so what's, what he's saying here is that truth is encountered and it is known, but then it is appropriated. That you take the old self and you take it off and you take the new self and you put it on. That now I live in light of the real truth, Christ himself being the truth. I live in his righteousness and I get to show the world his righteousness now. So this is like taking off the old jersey when you get traded. You're like, oh, I made it out of the rec league and I'm on the travel team. You remember the day I got that? I, I thought that was one of the best days of my life when I was recruited from the rec league and I made it on the travel team. And I remember the change of jerseys. The like, moment of, oh, I'm so proud of Like this is such an accomplishment. And this is it. But it's not your accomplishment. It's his. So take off the old self and now put on the new self. This is what you get to show the world, the righteousness of Christ. And then 25. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth. So therefore, remember, it's connecting us to what he just said. He just said, we're, we're created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Now listen to the language repeated here. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth. Each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Therefore, putting away lying, now we're going to speak the truth because made in God's likeness, this purity of the truth. We're going to say what is true. Um, and if you've ever come to me or Courtney for couples marital counseling, we talk about this a lot. Each of you, speak the truth. Putting away lying, speak the truth to one another. So much of communication is hurtful when we just don't say what is true. And we may avoid saying what is true because we think that's going to create further tension. Like, no, you're just avoiding it and it's going to be worse when it comes back. We're to put away lying, but speak the truth. Each one of us, members of one another. Members of one another. I love the way that one of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, he said it like this. He said, if the eye were to spy a serpent or a wild beast, will it lie to the foot? Will it not at once inform it, and the foot thus informed by it refrain from going on? And what again, when neither the foot nor the eye shall know how to distinguish, but all shall depend upon the smelling, as, for example, whether a drug be deadly or not, 
Will the smelling lie to the mouth? And why not? Because it will be destroying itself also. And so remember last week, everyone is vital. We each are a part of this body. And so in John's illustration here, he's like, you know, if, if the eye sees a snake, the snake could bite you, you could die. Does the eye say, you know what, I'm going to keep this a secret from the foot. Keep on walking, foot. No. <laughs> because the eye is going to suffer as a result of the foot continuing on. Or the nose can smell the poison in the drug. And so, should I, should I consume? And the nose, no, 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 you should not. You tell the mouth, no, don't eat, don't partake. Because it will destroy itself. And so we have to think of ourselves, church, as such, as a body, and we all are parts. We must speak up. We must speak what is true. Because it actually is loving our neighbor and loving ourselves. And you remember the second of the great commands? Love your neighbor like yourself. There is prudence to loving yourself. So here we go. Keep going, verse 26. It says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Wow. There will be a tension. Do you see that there are actually two commands in that first statement there? Be angry and do not sin. There's actually a command in be angry. We often think of anger as just this sinful, terrible thing. Got to get my anger under control. Yeah, we should. But did you know that anger is not inherently sinful? But we are prone to sin in our anger. And so he's giving us two commands there. Be angry and do not sin. Be honest about the way that you feel. But in being honest about the way you feel and the way that you respond and all that, do not sin in that. Be angry and do not sin. So how can you express anger in a way that is not sinful? And he brings in Satan into this, which is always fun. Like, oh, snaky guy. He brings up this contrast by introducing Satan here. Satan is known as the father of lies. Do you know, Satan would love to distort things in your anger to lead you into sin. And so, again, in context, when he's talking so much about being truthful, that we're in the likeness of God, this purity of truth, he's saying, put away lying, speak the truth, And now, you know that the serpent, the Satan, the accuser, he loves, he's the father of lies. He loves to deceive you. So be angry, be honest about that, but do not sin. Satan would love to warp your anger. Like, create all these lies and these false stories and everything where our minds just run rampant with what could be and everything else. You're like, but that's not even reality. It's like, in that, put a stop to it. Put a stop to it. Put an expiration stamp on it. Don't leave it because you know that Satan won't. He's going to use it. And so you don't just sit in your anger. You need to act on it, but you need to act on it in such a way that you do not sin. Because if you just hold on to it, you know that Satan is doing the same thing and he's going to deceive you. He's going to use this for his good, not ours. And you have to consider Jesus being angry. You know that God is, is shown to be wrathful in the scriptures? That God has a righteous anger. And that Jesus, God the Son, takes on human flesh and lives the sinless life. And yet he got angry. On multiple occasions in the Gospels, we hear of Jesus getting angry. A prominent among them, you have um, Jesus showing up in a synagogue. And some of the Pharisees are like trying to trip Jesus up. And they're like, you know, it's the Sabbath day. What's he going to do? We've heard he does all these crazy cool things. But like, we're going to trip him up. And there's this man there with a withered hand. This guy is suffering. He is suffering. 
And Jesus sees this man suffering and knows their hearts, that they're trying to trip him up and they're going to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. And it says that Jesus in his anger took action and healed this man. He was angry. Or the more famous time of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple, driving the money changers out. (laughs) My father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus Jesus, who we love to make into this caricature, filly, feathered hair, like, oh, he's so calm and gentle. Like, you imagine he walks around with his hands like this and he's just walking around. Hey, everything's going to be okay. That Jesus goes into the temple, which is supposed to be the holy dwelling place of God, and starts grabbing tables and throwing them, knocking stuff off. He's got a whip and he is cracking it. Like a real threat, this will hurt. He is yelling. He is angry. And he drives them out. Jesus got angry. There is time for you to be angry and be honest about that. And there's time for you to take action in your anger. Paul's saying, be angry and do not sin. So we have to think, how can I be angry? Again, where's the battleground for holiness? In your mind. Think, how can I be angry? How can I express that anger? How can I act in that anger, but in a way that is not sinful? Do you know what Jesus did before he drove these people out of the temple? He made that whip. He made the whip before he went in. He showed up and saw what was happening. He is currently angry, but he took the time to go sit down and braid an entire whip. This would not have been a quick third together, like, hey, you got a weapon? throw it at me. No, he took time. And what an example for us in our anger. Step away for a moment. Be angry. But now think through what are you about to do? And then act righteously in that. Like Jesus. Righteously angry. Going through the temple, driving them out. But not until after he sat down to braid a whip. So be angry and do not sin. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. That seems a little out of left field there. (laughs) All right, holiness. Be honest, be truthful, don't be selfish. Okay, control your anger. In your anger, the temptation is to just get me, 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 me. Well, I gotta make this right. But no, think it through. Be holy in that. And now, hey, thieves, kleptomaniacs, cut it out. Where did that come from? It's in the same vein. It's selfishness. Theft is selfish. The old self that we're to take off is selfish, but not so with the new self. The new self now actually labors for others as much as oneself. Like, here's the thing. Stop stealing. Do honest work. Do honest work. And not just so that you have what you need, but do honest work so that you're ready to share with someone else. And again, we put this in the context he's talking about the church. There is no place for laziness. If you wrestle with, like, I think I might be a lazy person, you probably should wrestle with that. Read uh, Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica. Laziness is not okay. He said, work, work diligently. Work not just so that you can provide for yourself and your family, work so that you're ready to actually help someone else. And what a beautiful community if all of us come together and we say, 
I'm going to be so honest. I'm going to work so diligently that we're just, we're going to cover every need that ever comes up here. And what a beautiful thing to not be selfish. All right, let's keep going. 29, he says, no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. It's continuing the same theme, but now it's about our speech. Our speech should flow out of the new self, being unselfish and generous or helpful to others, building them up. And then 30, and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Know that this verse starts with and, another connecting word. So he's talking about speech. Don't let your speech be selfish. Let it be generous, constructive, not destructive, building others up. And yet now he goes and says, huh, don't grieve the spirit of God. What? Have, do you think about it like that? This verse is often ripped out of its context and used for a variety of things. But let's look at it in context. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? You can upset the Holy Spirit. And how does that happen? It starts with and, meaning it's connected to what he just said. The things that we say. The things that you do say or don't say. That can upset God. The Spirit, who, remember, in last week's text, He has arranged the body as He sees fit. He has given gifts for the building up of the church. And so the Spirit is at work trying to build us up, and we can actually upset Him in that process by the things we don't say or the things we do say. He's saying, Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Meaning, this is what is true of you. It is as good as done. You've been sealed with it. So live in light of it. What we speak is tied to our hearts. And when Jesus, with that famous, uh, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, what comes out of our mouth is really coming out of our heart. So it matters. This grieves the spirit who resides in us. He sealed us for the day of redemption. He's empowering us to see it through to that day. And it's for unity and growth. What we say has an effect on that. So let's be careful with what we say. And then he says in 31, he says, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. A further contrast has been pictured. Bitterness is our attitude. Anger and wrath is our disposition. Shouting and slander refer to our manner of speech. And he's saying, instead of these things, there should be kindness. This is leveraging one's strength for another's weakness. There should be compassion. You should be compassionate. This idea, Tim loves to talk about this, this co-passion. It's co-meaning together and passion meaning suffer. That in compassion, we suffer together. Or it's to forgive one another. To forgive someone means to accept the pain or the cost and let it terminate on you. That you have caused me harm, you have hurt me. And instead of justly giving it back to you, I say, I'll let it stop here. And I'll just accept the hurt. Is this not what Jesus did on the cross? That we have rebelled, we have defied a holy God. There are consequences, there is pain for that. And yet that God is so gracious that he came to earth and lived a sinless life and then died the death that you and I deserve so that on the cross he could forgive us, meaning he would take the pain on himself and let it terminate there and not inflict it back on us. To truly forgive us, he took the pain on himself and now we get to walk in that kind of light. Because again, 
The battlefield of holiness is the mind. And so we have to see the gospel to forgive others. We have to see that we have been forgiven, how Christ has forgiven us. And then chapter 5 is actually still part of this, I'm convinced, but he, he says in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. That you can imitate God because he is your father and you are his beloved child. So you live out of that identity. Again, the battleground of holiness is the mind. So in your mind, you must see and know, this is who I am. I'm forgiven. He is my father. So I'm a dearly loved child of God. I'm going to imitate him. I'm going to live like he wants me to live. Out of that identity, I will live. And he says, it looks like walking in love. Walk in love. See the way that Christ died for us. His sacrifice was sufficient. The offering wasn't enough. We know it's called a fragrant offering. That in, in the Old Testament, um, in, the, in the temple system, or even back in the tabernacle, if, if this offering was supposed to be fragrant and was sent up, um, if there was impurity involved, or for whatever reason, God did not accept it, that was known. But a fragrant offering was one that was pleasing to God. And Christ, his sacrifice, was a fragrant offering. We know that because of the resurrection, that he did not stay dead. He was raised back to life. And that is the, the validation, that is proof that the sacrifice was enough. And so we know we have salvation because Jesus was raised back, victorious over death and hell. We know this. And then three to five, he says, but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and of God. So verse three relates to conduct the way that we conduct ourselves. Greed is included along with sexual immorality and any impurity, and that seems a little weird. Like, no sexual perversion, don't be greedy. Like, well, okay, two things, but really they're so much the same. It's this continued theme of self-love as opposed to the love we are called to, which is selfless, that we give and we'll just take. Verse four relates to speech. Some talking is destructive and some is constructive. So how can you ensure that your speech is constructive? What does he say there? You saturate it with gratitude. How do we keep obscene talk out of our mouth? How do we keep foolish joking, these things that are unbefitting a saint? You live and express gratitude. He's constantly thankful. Uh, I, was in a, I was in a meeting with this older pastor who's a hero to many young pastors, he, he's like a father figure to many. And he's talking to us, a bunch of younger guys, and he, he gave us this challenge. He's like, I want you <clears throat> to commit today to just not complaining. Do you know how radical that is? I want to ask you to do that. Set a reminder in your phone for when you wake up tomorrow. Commit to just one thing for the day. No complaining. Do you know how different you will sound. You know how much that will affect your speech. No complaining, just gratitude. To learn to just be grateful. And then verse five speaks to the exclusion of those who practice such, summarily calling them idolaters. 
is because idolatry is at the heart of all sin. It's putting something or someone in the place of God. And those who do such have no place in the kingdom of God. We respond to the gospel by acknowledging God as God and receive this inheritance. We allow God to be God, not an idol. And so this is an elliptical statement. Um, It's said in context where salvation by grace through faith is clear and understood, and so he can make this succinct statement. You can read that and think, oh, I struggle with those things. Ah, Does that mean I'm never going to heaven? No, it's, it's an elliptical statement. In context, he has established we are saved by grace through faith. But here's what is true. That salvation, that gospel, is that God is God and we're trusting him to be God, not an idol. So we cannot be idolaters. This position put forward is an ongoing one. So, in conclusion, we have a decision before us continually. Are we going to walk according to the old self or the new self? The bottom line is be holy and unusual people showing unusual glory and love. Be holy and unusual people showing an unusual glory and love because to be holy is to be different. It's to be set apart and God is calling us to be holy. And so there's a lot of stuff like we could have, like every couple of verses could have been its own sermon in this text. But I want you to see as you pull it all together in this call to walk in holiness, what he's saying is you're gonna be different. You should be different because God is different. And you think about Jesus who came and had this very peculiar death, the death of a criminal who's been put on death row and then executed. He has been murdered the Son of God, who created all things. All things were created through him and for him. This God was murdered by his own creation. That is peculiar. That is different. It is not normal. It is strange. And yet in that, he showed us a very strange, a very peculiar, a very different kind of love and glory that we would know no other way. This is the way that we would know how much he loves us, that he would come for sinners like you and me, and he would die for us and say, I love you this much. There's no other way to show you than for you to see how horrific this death is. This is forgiveness, that all the pain of all of it would terminate on me. I would not put it on you because I love you in grace. This is glory. This is love. You would not see it anywhere else. It is only this God. And now he says, look, believer, you get to walk in this. You get to be weird like me. You get to be peculiar. You get to be holy. You get to show the world a strange way of life that says, no, I'll take the pain on myself and I won't inflict pain back on you and I won't live for myself. In fact, I'll work so hard that I have something to give you. You get to do all these things. You get to talk in such a way that it only builds other people up. Why? Because you get to experience some of this particular peculiar glory with him in that. And know that he loves you in this way. And now you get to show the world that. That you get to show the world. We are an unusual people, but we get to show this unusual glory, this unusual love. So you know what? You put on the hat, and it might be a little sideways, but then you look in the gospel in the mirror, and you fix it and say, this is how I want to walk. The way that he has called me to. I get to be different. And in living this life, it may hurt a lot. But I get to show the world there's something different and that something different is a God who loves us in a different way than this world knows. So will you walk in holiness this week? Will you commit to not complaining? Will you commit to speaking the truth in love? Will you commit to being justly, righteously angry but not sinning in that anger? 
Will you show the world a peculiar glory, a peculiar love, the love of a God who would love us to death? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love, your grace, your glory. It is unusual. It is strange. It's amazing. There's nothing and no one like you. And so we give you all the glory. We love you with all of our hearts. You're glorious. We love you and thank you for sending your son to die for us. Uh, Spirit, would you move in us? Would you convict us of sin? We don't want to grieve you. Let us walk in step with you. Help us to do this because we can only do it by your power. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.